without further ado, uh, we're going to introduce our speaker. He came a long way to be with us, and uh, we're very grateful for that. And uh, I got to speak with him a little bit over last night and, and a little bit today. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I know very little about this man, but what I know is he, he does a lot in AA, and he helps a lot of people. So uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that he's here. And uh, help me welcome Carl from West Covina, California. Good evening. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Got to tell Dylan I'm from Covina, not West Covina. And that doesn't matter unless you're from Covina. <laughs> uh, thank you, April. I sure appreciate it. And uh, Henry, where's Henry? Picked me up at the airport yesterday, and I got to tell you that uh, he looks like he's from Miami. He does, doesn't he? And uh, my friends Robert and Peter are here. Thanks for coming out. Anyway, uh, also very smart move on waiting on the 50-50 until I'm done, just in case I really suck. You still have to stay and wait to find out whether you win. Right? Planned it that way. So anyway, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, it's the most dominating feature of my personality, drunk or sober. It uh, doesn't matter whether uh, people, when I was drinking, noticed very quickly that I was alcoholic. You could smell me, you could see me, you could see it, absolutely understood it. And even when I'm sober, if you get to know me after a couple of days, you spend two days with me and you don't, you don't underst understand alcohol, you're going to say, there's something strange about you. <laughs> really. My sobriety date is January 21st, 1987, so therefore, just a couple of, uh, month and a half ago, I got 30 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was... I was, I was 25 years old when I got here, and uh, I really, really, really needed to be here. And this thing that I'm, I'm claiming to be alcoholic, if you're new or fairly new, I want you to know why I believe I'm an alcoholic. It's really very simple. It's not complicated at all. Uh, the reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is because I've got a really bizarre, and bizarre is an understatement, a really bizarre relationship with alcohol. That's why I'm an alcoholic. And this strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a few forms. The first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. A very strange thing happens when I drink booze. The book calls it an allergic reaction. And the book says the symptom of this allergic reaction that I get when I drink booze is what they refer to as the phenomenon of craving. And the best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink the thirstier I get. It happens with nothing else. Uh, an example of that is, they're kind enough to give me these, uh, this bottle of water. And over the next 45 minutes to three hours that I'm talking with you, <laughs> I know a few of you just got nervous, huh? I will probably drink half this bottle. I don't know. I might finish the whole bottle of water. But I can absolutely swear to you that once I finish this bottle of water, I am not going to go get a case of water and lock myself in a motel room. <laughs> There's absolutely no chance of that happening. No, ch no chance that at 3 a.m., you know, I'm going to be in a motel room <laughs> calling up Peter. Peter, come on, man, I need, I need another case. I need a I'll turn the pink slip in my car over. Come on, dude. It's not going to happen. Right? But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this bizarre physical response that I get, this craving, if that was the only part of... Uh, the only thing that made me alcoholic, well then, just say no would have wiped out alcoholism, right? Early 80s, Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no. I would have, and I imagine you would have gone, ha ha, no. And just gone on and lived a, live a happy, successful life just saying no. Maybe once a year we'd get together and go, you know, uh, have, a, have a Nancy Reagan conference. And we'd all go, just say no. All right, and go back to our normal lives and just, for, we, would look at, we would look at it in the past and not worry about it at all. And we'd just go, whew, glad I got out of that. Right? But there's this other part of my relationship with alcohol. And this is the part that used to baffle everybody that loved me or had authority over me, or even came near me. And that is that when, and this happens when I'm not drinking. See, up and by myself, if I don't drink for a day, a week, or a month, I seem to have this mind that is able to paint a picture that makes it okay to take another drink, no matter what the pain, humiliation, and suffering was a day, a week, or a month ago. And it never, and I mean never, enters the, into the equation, whether it's my pain and humiliation, or your pain and humiliation. I could care less. Sooner or later, my mind is able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink 
at all costs. So therefore, I cannot drink successfully because it's bizarre physical reaction that I get. But at the very same time, I cannot not drink successfully. I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch-22. Because if I, if I could do either one of those two things, I would. Except I just lied. I don't want to drink successfully. Because that means only a couple of drinks. A couple of drinks makes me nervous. I mean, just the thought of just a couple of drinks without the ability to get 50 more really makes... Doesn't it just sort of like... It's like chalk, you know, fingernails on a, on, a, on a blackboard. Like, oh! Right? So, therefore... See, med- our book is very polite when, we, when it says that medical science may one day accomplish this, making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. But I don't really want to be a normal drinker. Do you? I'm not interested in a couple of drinks unless I'm having a couple of drinks while you're bringing me another couple of drinks. <laughs> so, therefore, there, you can't solve what's wrong with me by, turning, by limiting the amount of alcohol I take. Now... This is the only thing that medical science could come up with that would address what I got. Because I either need to be loaded or in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of those two things. Those are my two choices. There's no in-between, no kind of dancing around either one of them. I'm either in it on both. So the only thing that medical science could come up with that would interest a guy like me, and I assume you, is if they came up with something that said, Carl, if you take this pill, you can drink for three days straight. You can snort as much cocaine as you want, and nobody will go to jail. Nobody will go to the hospital, and your mother will still be, be very proud of you. Now, now I had to turn my head. I go, uh, well, now. <laughs> right? But we all know that. Yeah, exactly. We all know that's impossible. Science cannot address what's wrong with me. Which brings me to the third part, is that I have this spiritual relationship with alcohol. And I'm going to talk about that later. I'm not going to get into it now. I'm going to harp more on that physical feature a little bit, because it's the one thing, bar none, we all have in common. Right? If you're new or fairly new, and you're been, you've been sitting around in meetings waiting for somebody to tell your story, you might be waiting a long time. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is a huge, wide cross-section of society. Every single race, creed, color, religion, economic background, social background, type of family, education, I mean, profession, all of us are here. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only place where the bank president, the bank teller, and the bank robber are all right here in the same room. Right? And they're all telling a very different story about what just happened. So our stories, if, you, if you're listening to the backgrounds, our stories are different. So you may not, you know, if, you, if you're listening to that as to identifying whether you're alcoholic or not, you might lose. We also drink differently than each other. And if you listen closely to people's stories, you, you'll, you'll see we drink differently than each other. To illustrate that, let's imagine this. We wheeled in this giant cart right into the, uh, right into the center of the room. And on that cart, we had all... All the kinds of booze we all love. If you're a top shelf expensive drinker, we got it. Remy Mark Cavazier, we got it. If you're a bottom shelf drinker, we got that too. Mad Dog 2020 and everything in between. And <laughs> Robert, <laughs> Mad Dog. <laughs> he started to drool right there. Right? And we all took a good four or five stiff drinks, real drinks. No umbrellas in there, no mixer, right? Some stiff drinks. And we all took a good four or five stiff drinks. We'd all be acting very, very differently. Right over in this corner, we'd have the good time crowd. Ha, 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 talk, 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 fun, fun. Woohoo! talk, 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 talk. Add a little methamphetamine, talk a little faster. Talk, 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 right? But we're have, we have a good time over in this corner. Over in this corner, we got the sobbers. You know them. Woo! Right? They go off in the corner. Ah, drunk and sad. Ah. Over in this corner, we got the fighters. You know them. They get a little drunk. Got to fight, got to fight. Over in this corner, a bunch of us would be naked. <laughs> I personally would be visiting the other three corners trying to find two or three people to come over here with me. That's what I mean. <laughs> Just the way I am. Right? So our stories are different based upon which corner we're in, right? The good time crowd, they get a lot of DUIs, right? Always getting arrested out on the road because got to get to the next bar, next party. Hey, after hours, who's picking up the booze? We're going to meet at Fred's house, right? They're always out on the road. So they get arrested a lot. 
over in the sobbing corner, they don't get arrested. They don't even leave the damn house. Just, right? The worst thing they do is call you at 2 a.m. Or God forbid these days, drunk Facebooking. Like, you know, we don't get arrested for that. Over in the fighting corner, their stories always have probation, parole, attorneys, court dates. Mom's always coming up with more bail money, right? That's going on. Over here, a bunch of children show up by surprise. That'll change your life, drunk or sober, right there. So our stories are different based upon which corner we're in. But no, no matter which corner we're in, there's one thing. There's one thing we'd all be doing. We'd all be back at that cart for another drink. It was really important for me to understand that when I was new in listening to people's stories to decide whether I am you, whether I'm alcoholic, right? Because if I'm listening to where you went to school or didn't go to school or where you grew up, what kind of family you came from, what country you grew up in, I, you know, I, I may or may not hit. But if I'm listening to what happens to you when you drink and then what happens to you when on your own you try not to drink, I'm you, you're me. It does not matter about any of that other stuff. So I set this relationship up with alcohol that I just described to you uh, right from the get-go when I first started drinking. I started drinking much later than most people in AA. I was 11. That is very late these days. I mean, oh, I'm from the Los Angeles area. I see 12-year-olds on their third treatment, right? So, typical morning in seventh grade for in, in Seattle there, uh, for me would be... Uh, I would show up early for school, not for study hall or anything, but to meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, loser's corner. Every school's got a loser's corner, kind of like the way AA treats its smokers these days, right? <laughs> got to go out in the parking lot. and So we'd be about 10 feet off the school property out there smoking cigarettes. And we would also have what I like to call the playground cocktail. That is a jar full of, full of whatever we could rip off out of the parents' liquor cabinet the night before. And that jar is uh, kind of scary because none of us have been to bartending school yet. And when you're ripping off the parents' liquor cabinet, you're not sitting there measuring and you know, looking at a, a menu for uh, Harvey Wallbangers. You're just throwing whatever's in there, right? And so there's green things floating around. There's whiskey, vodka, cream to mint, vermouth, all in the same jar. You can imagine six or seven of us, 11, 12-year-olds, choking that down at 7 in the morning. Of course, it was the early 70s, so we're smoking that commercial pot. Anybody old enough to remember that stuff? Four-finger lids, $10 a bag, seeds and stems, and the whole bit. It was even before they invented Ziploc baggies, when it would just be a regular Glad sandwich bag. And it, as you'd roll it up, there'd be like nine people spit on it, like, oh. Were you guys there, too? Yeah, that's why you're here. <laughs> I got to tease some friends sometimes. This is, I'm just teasing about this, but I, at this point, this, this is when a lot of people say, "I don't mean to offend anybody, but drugs are a part of my story," and they're trying to protect singleness of purpose, vitally important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous, no doubt about it. But it's still a funny thing for alcoholics to apologize to other alcoholics for doing drugs while drinking or in between drunks. It really is. It's weird. The funniest example of that I've ever seen, it was a number of years ago, at least 20-some years ago. I'm in a big meeting in West Los Angeles, and the speaker that night was just giving one of the most nasty, blow-by-blow drunk logs I've ever heard. And i got to tell you, when I'm sitting there listening to a speaker and the drunk log starts to get ugly, the uglier it gets, the more excited I get. And I think that night I was on the edge of my chair drooling, going, I have to go, buddy, go! Yeah! Right? And at one point, this really ugly story, and at one point, this really ugly story, this guy said, you know, I had four DUIs, and the judge said, if I get one more DUI, I'm going to prison for sure. He said, two weeks later, I'm on the freeway in a blackout, and I hit a family of four. The family of four all wound up in the hospital, and I wound up in prison, in prison. I sodomized men. I was sodomized, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I did some drugs, too. <laughs> I was the only one that thought that was strange that night. Everybody else said, okay, you can mention them. So by the time I'm 14 there in, in Seattle, I'm the, neighbor, I'm the neighborhood drunk. I'm the neighborhood pot dealer. I forgot to mention that my father was a neighborhood Lutheran minister. Yeah, he didn't find anything funny about this at all. Now, my parents, good people, really good people. And they saw something was wrong with me, but they didn't, they didn't understand I was alcoholic. It was obvious something was wrong with me. I'm 14. My hair is down onto my shoulders like Edgar Winter. Right? I got very bloodshot eyes. And my vocabulary is 
Whoa. Whoa. Right? So my parents are like, right? but they don't understand I'm alcoholic, so they blame my problems on people, place, and things. They say, get them, get them away from that group of kids he's hanging out with, things to get better. Get them out of the public school system, things. They tried all of the above. But you see, I'm an alcoholic. My problems are not based upon people, place, and things. My problems are based upon my physical and mental relationship to alcohol. If you change the people, place, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. So when I was uh, uh, almost 18, I barely scraped out of the public school system there in Seattle after getting kicked out of the private school system, and my parents decided that Seattle was a problem. Get them out of Seattle, things would get better. So they sent me 300 miles away to Washington State University. I spent three years at that university on my parents' money, and I got almost 10 credits. Um, I know. At any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content about a .25. I did not, not 2.5. That'd be a C average. I'd be boasting about that. I'm talking .25. Right. That's, that's like the only class I passed was a D in bowling. Right? So by the, time, by the time I'm 22... This little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my father was Swedish, my mother is Icelandic, therefore I look like a polar bear. And I don't, and I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran, I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives. My parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas, and as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. (laughs) Now, the first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. (laughs) The next paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year, and that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this. She saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. (laughs) It was small at one time. And they love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. actually being very kind. It's, it's right about this same time. Uh, really, it would take till breakfast to describe everything involved in this next move I made. Another brilliant move. Uh, so I shortened it up because it really would take hours to describe all the nuances involved in this thing. So I just say it really to the point. A really bad night happened, so I joined the Navy. It was that bad of a night. (laughs) On my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test that qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. That should concern you. (laughs) This is 1984, the peak of the Cold War. This should concern you that the United States Navy had any type of system in place that would even maybe possibly or even remotely allow somebody like me near anything nuclear. (laughs) However, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp and I could not pass this particular test. This test is called a urinalysis test, is what it's called. (laughs) Never knew how to pass those things. God, I should have been kicked out, but uh, uh, I still remember I still remember I had, uh, been in, yeah, I had been in boot camp for about 10 days, and in came the mass of arms. It's like military police, and they had this, uh, you know, the guy had this clipboard. He started to read off about five or six names, and I knew my name would be. It's the list of the people that were, had gone positive on the first year analysis, thing, and I knew my name was going to be on there. And he took the five or six of us uh, out of the barracks and over, uh, from, took us from the training side of the Great Lakes Naval Base over to the administrative side. 
the other guys were taken into this one building, and I was taken into the building next door, and I was marched right into the commanding officer's office, the guy who ran the whole Great Lakes Naval Base. And I'm taken into this big office, plush carpeting, big oak desk, pictures of naval vessels up on the wall, and the guy behind the desk had so much gold on his shoulder, blind you on a bad morning. And I, I stood there, and he asked me my name. I gave him my name, and as I said, this would be early 80s, 1984, on this big oak desk, he had a telephone with a speakerphone attachment sitting there. And he pushed the button on the speakerphone attachment, and into the speakerphone he said, Walt, that's my father's name. You can imagine how I felt. I know, that's exactly what I did. Oh. See, by this time, my father would have, by 1984, he would have been uh, both active and reserve, alternating over the last 40 years in the United States Navy. He was a chaplain for 30 of those years in the United States Navy. So this was an old World War II buddy of my father's. You can imagine the luck, right? (laughs) So into this speakerphone, he goes, Walt, out of consideration for our long-term friendship, I thought I should ask you before I took any action. I'm supposed to kick your son out right now. But I thought I'd ask you, what do you feel we should do with your son? Now, normally, when you met my father, you would there's a couple of things you would notice right away. His body language and his voice told you he loved life. He thought life was a, an immense privilege and that he would engage you and, and want to be of service to you. And you could get that from his, his voice and his body language. But there was another voice that would come out of that man. And it was like somebody had just kneed him right below the belt buckle. It would be weak destroyed and confused and I had heard that voice so much in the previous 10 years when he was dealing with me and that was the voice that came through that speakerphone that morning and I heard my father's weak and destroyed voice just say it's just none of my concern anymore click and then dial tone the man behind the desk let that dial tone go a little longer just for the effect (laughs) as he stared at me and I'm like He kept me in the Navy anyway. Uh, Thank God for you guys. He took away that nuclear status thing. (laughs) And a year and a half later, I'm a lower rank than when I first came in. Kind of happens like this. At this point in my life, I'm 23, I'm 24, I'm 25 years old. And I am triggering these three-day drunks by accident now. I used to go on three-day runs on purpose, right, where I would plan it, I would do enough drugs and the right combination, keep a three days going, right? Now I'm triggering three-day drunks by accident. And I'm, I'm blacking out for days at a time on these drunks. And i got to tell you, it's a strange feeling coming out of those uh, three-day drunk, 6 a.m. in the morning, in a foreign country, on a large pier, going... <clears throat> Uh, there was a destroyer here the other day. <clears throat> right, Navy frowns on this. I've been in the Navy approximately two years, and I came out of another one of those three-day drunks. I'm late. Uh, it's a Monday morning. I'm late getting back to the ship, and I was racing back to the ship, and I, I was doing what I always did now at the end of those three-day drunks. I'm gaining tools for living as a drunk. I'm saving a, a pint underneath my seat, and I'm drinking half of that on my way into the ship. I would keep the other half a pint underneath the seat so that at noontime I can run off the ship and drink the other half a pint sort of my way of sliding into Tuesday. And I was paying more attention to, to getting that half a pint in me than where the car was going. And I was going in the back gate at 32nd Street Base in San Diego, and there's a long straightaway, and there's not much security like there is the front one. And I am uh, I, I'm paying more attention to this bottle, and all of a sudden I, my eyes come into focus, and there's a Marine inside this guard shack, and he's half out of the guard shack like... I'm wondering what he's so excited about. Look down, I'm going 40 miles an hour. I tried to yank the wheel. The, wheel, the car hit this median on the right-hand side, flipped over, and bang, right through that guard shack. I can still see this Marine doing this big dive out of there. He did a big somersault. He was back up, weapon drawn. Thank God these guys are in good shape. Right? The Navy is very angry at me. The Marine is all right. They're patching me up at the hospital for minor injuries, and they're reading new charges on me. There's nothing significant about new charges. That's just what happens in a guy's life like mine about every 90 days if you're living the way I'm living. So there's nothing significant about that. But the most significant thing that happened that morning is the Navy doctors prescribed this stuff called Anabuse for me. And they sent this prescription back to the ship's doctor. I was now under orders to show up at sick bay every single morning. And the corpsman would put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour. 
Over the next seven to ten days, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this thing we call alcoholism. And that is I had no alcohol in my system, and I was literally going insane. See, what happens to me when you take alcohol away from me, and you do not put me in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. Restless, irritable, and discontent is an understatement. What had been happening to me in my whole life when, when people that loved me or had authority over me would be sending me to counselors, psychologists, or somebody to talk to. I did not have the vocabulary to tell them this. If I could have, this is what I would have said. I agree that the price of my drinking is getting high. I agree. I'm not happy the car is on fire either. I'm with you on that. You know, no argument for me. But if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking, you wouldn't be asking me why I drink. If I could have even followed it up with this, I would have said there's only one thing worse than the price I'm paying for my drinking, and that's the way I feel when I'm not drinking. And I don't have that vocabulary. I don't know, I don't, you know, and so, but what I didn't understand is that feeling that I just described is defining alcoholism. That's truly the definition of alcoholism in my life. Because if, if I could feel wonderful not drinking, I'd be fine. But the problems seem to pile up on me when I stop drinking. And, the, and, your, and your problems with me pile up when I am drinking. See, I was never able to put those, these two things together. Where you're happy with me and I'm happy with me at the same time. Because you're happy with me and hopeful when I'm not drinking. You're like, okay, okay. And I'm like, ah! And then when I'm drinking, I'm happy. And you're going, ah! Right? I could never put those two things together where we're both all right. So I started counting the, day, uh, the days on that abuse. Just it's been four days. <clears throat> I'm on abuse. Now it's been six days. And I'm on abuse. Now it's been eight days. Six hours. And 15 minutes. And I'm on abuse. And I started to look around that ship. The other men. They're talking behind my back. All 300 of them. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way in AA? The only difference is that in AA, uh, we are talking behind your back. It's not an illusion. We're really doing it. Only with love and tolerance here in the, at the Brickle Group. <laughs> Congratulations on five years, by the way. Yeah. 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 So, on the tenth day, I just snapped. I went AWOL from my ship, locked myself in a little hotel room in downtown San Diego, Plaza Hotel. It's on 4th and Broadway. Uh, still there. This would have been 1986. Uh, it was $13 a night to stay at the Plaza Hotel back in 1986. They have upgraded that whole area of San Diego, and it, it's now $19 a night to, to stay at the Plaza Hotel. I urge you, read the Yelp reviews on the Plaza Hotel in downtown San Diego. I remember sitting out on the edge of this bed looking at this little rickety... Uh, the, I had a bottle of vodka and a shot glass sitting on this rickety little end table. And as I stared at the bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a very stern warning about drinking on top of antibuse when they prescribed it for me. They had said, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of this antibuse, you will get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember looking at the bottle and I thought, <clears throat> well, wonder which reaction I'm going to get. <laughs> I took one shot and nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure, and I took another shot. All of a sudden, I felt tingly in the face, so I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room. I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart going boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched and sweating, and all of a sudden, I was like <gasps> hyperventilating. <gasps> We're doing all right so far. <laughs> You guys are sick if you think this is funny. It's really true. Yeah. So I took another shot. 
and up it came. My late sponsor, Eddie Cochran, calls this next thing that happened to me, projectile regurgitation. <laughs> this is a new level of puking I'm unfamiliar with. Right? We all know normal puking, right? You're out there in the middle of a good drunk. You get that little warning, right? A little sour taste in the back of your throat. Maybe a little bit comes up in your mouth and you go, mm-hmm. And we all know, based upon experience, we have 30 to 60 seconds to try to, you know, find a bathroom if there happens to be one. If we're driving, we try to get the window down because we learned our lesson not to blow it all over the dashboard. You know, it gets into the ventilation system and it's bad for a week. It is. It's bad. Hard to sell it again, too. But we get the warning. But here on the antibuse, there's no warning. It's just, ah! Sort of this Linda Blair spray across the room. Thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. It's a design feature, I believe, maybe to make convicts feel more at home upon release. I'm not really sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of Anabuse, and that is if I hang in there, and that's an important feature. If you're going to drink on top of Anabuse, you cannot half measure it. You must. You must. You must be committed. And with me, I would keep drinking, and I keep puking, and I keep drinking, and I keep puking for about an hour to an hour and a half. Enough of the Anabuse would kick out of my system, and I'd quit throwing up. And I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating and sweating, and I'm pretty much all right with that. So I drank on top of Anabuse the last seven months of my drinking. The only words to describe this are desperation drinking. My second and my last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot in a pool of blood. And I came to on an operating table. Now, we, one of the other tools for living we get out there is when you come to out of a blackout, you start looking at your surroundings. Am I in my own bed? Do I know where I'm at? You know, am I in jail? And you're trying to gauge good night or bad night, right? Operating table equals bad night. Really bad night. I got to tell you guys, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a little frustrated with you guys in, 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 in one way because you guys were all describing coming out of your blackouts like this. You guys would all be saying, oh, I'm just so grateful to be sober today because now I wake up instead of coming to. And, you know, I used to come out of blackouts and I'd look next to me and, oh, it was horrible, as if you were always the good-looking one. <laughs> See... The, the, the thing that had been going on with me is that I'd been coming out of blackouts. Every once in a while, I'd look next to me and go, not bad. I've been working on her for a few weeks. She would wake up and go, oh, not Carl, no. And, right? So there's two sides of that story, you know. My last night of drinking, I'm being let out of the San Diego jail. I'm being transferred from civilian authorities back to military authorities. It's one of those mornings where handcuffs are extra tight and the uh, 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 people in uniform are angry. And neck muscles aren't working well. Hated those mornings. And decisions are being made for you. That morning, the officer deck would not allow them to bring me on board my ship. He put his arm up and said, wrong answer. Orders have already been processed on this loser, and the orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct discharge, or treatment. Now, as I stood there in handcuffs, apparently some sort of option was thrown out on the table. Now, I don't remember thinking, oh, God, you're so good to a bum like me. I just can't go on this way anymore. And look at I get treatment. I don't remember that. Nor do I remember, and it probably would have been more likely that I would have thought, hey, if I just act like I want that treatment thing, maybe I can beat this one too. But I I now know that it would not have mattered what I was uh, thinking or feeling that morning because I was in handcuffs. Now, I don't know about your experience, but my experience throughout my life was always the same. Whoever had me in handcuffs, never once, never once did they ever turn to me and say, so what's your opinion on this matter? (laughs) Right? When you're in handcuffs, you go where they say and they took me up to a military treatment center up in the north end of San Diego. And when the doors were locked behind me, that's when they took the handcuffs off me. And there's no better representation about how the society I live in and the country I'm supposed to be serving feels about how Carl Morris acts out there in the world without Alcoholics Anonymous. They're willing to take the handcuffs off me when the doors are locked behind me. So I'm in this treatment center thing, and I, apparently we're going to do 45 days together. About 35 other men and women show up. Uh, over the next couple of days, and we're all doing this 45-day 45, uh, 45 thing together. And the first couple of days uh, in this treatment center, this facilitator is trying to, you know, he's got the whiteboard and giving us the progression of alcoholism and everything. He's giving us all he's got. And then he's trying to get us to talk, and none of us are talking. We're just like arms folded looking at the ground. And he was getting a little frustrated with us as they clicked into the second and third day and nobody's talking and he's running out of things to say. And finally, somewhere in the middle of the third day, this one guy raised his hand. His name was, pa- his name was Paco. And he goes, I'd like to say something. And the instructor said, Paco, what would you like to say? And Paco said, 
I hear, I hear I'm supposed to be rigorously honest with you guys if I'm going to do this staying sober thing. And I want you guys to know that Paco's not my real name. Paco's just a name I've always used since I've been a teenager whenever things look like trouble. And the other day when I got here, this looked like trouble. You're going to find out anyway when my file gets sent back from my ship. I want you guys to know my real name's Randy. Will you guys call me Randy from now on? And the rest of us kind of, okay, Randy, nice to meet you. But this facilitator got really excited and said, oh, my God, this is the first breakthrough of any honesty of any of your USOBs. Later that afternoon, they gathered us all up again. They called out Randy's name. He walked to the front. They had made a gold name tag that said Randy on it. They slapped on his chest. And then we were all informed that whenever staff was not around, Randy's in charge. Should have seen him. He's like that. And Randy loved his new job. And we all hated Randy. You know, whenever we're trying to smoke out a window in the middle of the night or something, you know, Randy will catch you. If your bed's not made, Randy will catch you. On the seventh day in this this place, they took us all to our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd never been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm aware of. All I know is, and we've been in this place seven days. And over the 1MC, it's like an intercom system through the barracks. They said, civilian clothes, parking lot, 6 p.m. And uh, so we're out there in civilian clothes and five... White vans pull up, and five or six of us get into each van, and boom, each van took off to a different meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the van I was in, sure enough, pulled up at one of your meetings, and we sit in the back. If you've ever been to, I know Robert's been to meetings in San Diego, you see the military sitting along the back all the time. And I'm very grateful they allow, allow them. You know, the people in AA, they don't really, do really belong here. They didn't care. They, just, they, they let anybody watch if it's an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. They didn't make anybody... Uh, do anything. And I'm so grateful you guys let us watch Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got this one sense that you guys were doing this whether we were there or not. Nobody was putting on a show for us. Nobody was doing anything especially because we were there. You guys were just letting us see what you do on a regular basis. And you guys floored me with the language you were speaking about alcoholism. I'll never forget this one guy. Right at the very first meeting. The first meeting I was at was about this size. And participation from the podium. It's very common in San Diego that they don't let you sit at your chair. You've got to go up front. They call on this guy and he walks all the way to the front and he says, My name's Jack. I'm an alcoholic. My mind would have killed my body a long time ago. Except it needed it for transportation. <laughs> and he sat down and I'm like, followed him all the way back to his chair and I looked at everybody else did, did, did you hear that and they're all like yeah he says that all the time and thank God Jack says it all the time because he knocked me right out of my chair right everybody else yeah Jack says it all the time we get tired of it right I never forget the first time I mentioned in front of my sponsor's sponsor about somebody telling the same story in a meeting I remember sitting there and I, I, I'll tell you who my first sponsor was in it but I'm sitting there in a meeting, and, and my first, I was 25 years old. My first sponsor was 23 years old with 14 more months than me. And his sponsor was this really old guy, about 55 years old, with about 28 years of sobriety. That's about what I am. Right? <laughs> so we're sitting there, and this old timer was telling uh, uh, the same thing that I'd, probably, I'd heard him say a couple other times. And I'm sitting there going, God, he says the same thing a lot. Why does he do that? And my sponsor's sponsor reaches past my sponsor and hits me in the back of the head. Bang! Like that. He's not talking to you right now. He's talking to the new guy that apparently you're unaware is in the meeting. And I, I remember having this overwhelming sensation of, oh, there's other people in AA. <laughs> that was huge. That was big news to me. Until then, I thought it was just a funnel of help for me. <laughs> Second night, second or third night, I don't remember, but uh, as much as I was identifying in the meetings, this one night I got really confused at one of the meetings while I was in treatment because somebody at that meeting was, mentioned something called a drug of choice. In fact, back in the 80s, it was like a common thing to people. My drug of choice is, and other people, well, my drug of choice is. <laughs> the first time I heard that, I'm thinking, was I supposed to be choosing out there? <laughs> Do they want me to choose now? What are they talking about? So the next morning, I'm back at the treatment center. I go, Mary, my counselor's name was Mary. I go, Mary, last night in the meeting, they're talking about something called a drug of choice. What do they mean by that? She said, Carl, let's play a game. That kind of scared me because I knew she was saying, let's pay attention. And that was hard because when I when I'd gotten there in treatment, they uh, did medical checkups on us, and they found out that my uh, they told me I had a liver of a seventy year old man. I was twenty five years old. Who knew that drinking on top of antibiotics would, would 
do a little number on your internal organs. They said I had extreme alcoholic edema because uh, uh, antibiotics stops your liver from processing it so it enters your system as pure alcohol and it just sits in your skin. So you can actually just push your skin, you'll you see fingerprints, and you can smell alcohol. It's very attractive. Right? So, but when somebody like that shows up, they will give you that little cup of pills. Anybody been on that cup of pills, right? At uh, the detox meds? And they give it to, you, to people in treatment so, so that you don't disturb the other patients by having that, you know, you know when you do the floppy fish and start dancing on the floor upside down, you know, and the white coats come and the sirens start going and it disturbs everybody, right? So they give you that cup of pills. If you've ever been on those things, you know what I'm talking about. Your field of vision is just fine about here. But there's dancing squiggly things over here. And when you turn to see what it is, now it's over here. And so you're doing a lot of this. So when, when the van shows up at your home group and they've still got the bracelet on and they're doing a little dance like that, that's what's going on. So when she said, Carl, we'll figure out where your drug of choice is. Let's play a game. I went, okay. And she goes, imagine this. Imagine I came into this room, Carl, and I had a tray, she said. And on that tray, I had a bottle of Jack Daniels, an ounce of cocaine, and an ounce of tie sticks. Which one would you take? I started to drool immediately. Ha, 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 ha. I take them all. And she started to snap her fingers. Settle down, Carl. Settle down. Focus, focus. Settle down. You can't have them all. You can only have one. Which one would you take? And I thought for a second. I said, well, Mary, I guess if I can only have one, I guess I'd take the ounce of cocaine. She said, ah, cocaine is your drug of choice. Do you understand now? And I go, no, no. She goes, what's the problem? I said, well, Mary, the only reason I take that ounce of cocaine over the other two is, well, I take that ounce of cocaine, I get the hell out of here, and I'd sell two eight balls. I would now have enough money for a quarter pound of Thai six and a case of Jack Daniels. That's what I would do. Now, the only reason I bring that up is to bring up a very important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous if you're new or fairly new, and that's sobriety dates. You need to have one. It's really, really important. Right? Everything about Alcoholics Anonymous becomes much clearer when you have a sobriety date. And there's only one sobriety date. If you're new or fairly new and you're bouncing around back and forth, am I really more of an addict than an alcoholic and people are talking with you and working with you and you're trying to figure that out, it, you don't, it's, no matter what, there's only one sobriety date. No matter what the guy outside the NA meeting says, there's only one sobriety date. Have you guys heard? I don't hear this very often, but every once in a while around L.A., I see this. Hey, I go, and, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And every once in a while I get, well, my drinking sobriety date is January 4th. My pot clean date is May 3rd. Oh, I blew my methamphetamine date last night. I was in Walmart all night long. No. Then he'll ask you, need your car worked on? No. I Funniest thing I ever heard about sobriety date, same scenario. I saw this guy around my home group for a while. I said, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And he said, well, I had 90 days, but I drank last night, so now I have 89 days. <laughs> I had to think about that one for a second myself. I think that kind of falls into the same category. As being down in Mexico, looking at the tequila, going, would that affect my U.S. sobriety date? Yes. Yes, sobriety dates are international. Just a little information for the new guy, that's all. So after 45 days and let us all out of that treatment center, just what the orders were. And they were uh, going to let us out on this Friday. And on a Wednesday before that Friday, they gathered all 35 of us. They put us in this room. And we're all sitting in this room, and the side door opens up, and the biggest, meanest counselor in the place uh, comes through that door, and he's a Marine. That day, he's wearing his full dress uniform. I got to tell you, a Marine in his full dress uniform is a very impressive, very intimidating sight. And he marched across the, the room to this podium that was up front, and we were all talking. And then when we saw him, it just went, just went quiet, dead silent. You, you could hear every footstep he took across the front of the floor. And he came up to a podium like this, and he leaned over, and he stared at us. He didn't say a word. It seemed like forever. He just stared at us. Probably was about 30 seconds. Then he finally spoke. He said, you 35 have been through one of the finest treatment centers in the world for alcoholism and drug addiction. We've been here for many, many years. And over the years, our statistics have shown us that out of you 35, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Many of you will die go insane, wind up in prison. Nice little exit pep talk, don't you think? <laughs> Goodness sake. 
And said many of you will relapse once, twice, maybe 20 times, and then make it back into long-term sobriety. But according to this treatment center statistics, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Man, if you thought it was quiet before he said that, you could have heard a pin drop in the room now. The only thing you could hear was me going, shit. Because <laughs> I knew if only one of us was going to make it, it was not going to be me. We all knew who it was going to be. It's going to be Randy over here, guaranteed. He's like the poster boy of the treatment center by now. So on this Friday Friday afternoon, they're letting us all out. Uh, people have transferred back their ships, base and commands in various different ways. And uh, I was one of the guys, I was one of four or five guys that were pulled aside and said, since you were arrested in your vehicle the night before you were thrown into this place, we have, we have taken your vehicle and put it into an impound lot. Uh, your vehicles will be brought to you one at a time, so stand on the front doorstep of the treatment center. They'll be, your cars will be coming. All right. So I'm standing there with four or five guys, and we're looking at each other, sea bags at our feet. We're kind of, do you feel treated? I don't know. What's that supposed to feel like? I don't know. All of a sudden, this one guy I'm with points at this car that's coming across the parking lot. And as it gets a little closer, one of the other guys says, is that Randy in that car? We look a little closer. Yeah, it's Randy. As he pulls up, we see he's got a bottle. He's polishing it off. He rolls right next up in front of us, rolls down the window and goes, ha, ha, ha. Throws the empty right at our feet. Crash! We look up. He gives us all the finger and he drives right off. <laughs> I guess his name was Paco again. I don't know. <laughs> Next thing that I remember that day is I showed up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a 6 o'clock gong show meeting in Pacific Beach. And I'm sitting in the back of this meeting and the truth about my life is I'm 45 days without a drink. I've got a lot of information. And I'm physically feeling better than I have felt since I've been a young teenager. But there had been no spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, even a personality, personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And what was even more dangerous than that is I did not know I needed one. I didn't understand that I actually have a spiritual relationship to alcohol also, other than a mental and physical relationship. This thing that's trying to, this thing that's me, that's trying to commu communicate with you right now, that thing that makes me me, that thing that mankind has tried to describe through religion, through uh, poetry, through literature, of all sorts, trying to describe that thing that makes us us, it, it has an overwhelming relationship to alcohol. The only way I can describe, describe it is to tell you a story. I have to jump ahead by 13 years. When I was 13 years sober in, in the year 2000, my mother calls me up and says, Hey, Carl, your uh, brother and his wife and kids are spending the summer in the south of France. Uh, let's go visit them. We'll stop by Iceland on the way and see the, the family farm and this museum dedicated to your great aunt. And we'll go visit them. And I absolutely love it. And indeed, my brother and his wife and the kids were spending this amazing... Remember, Microsoft money is gross. There's, just, there's no resentment for me. Um, right? they, they're living the summer in the chateau in the south of France. It's just amazing. So my mom and I, uh, we go to Iceland first for about six days, and I had a spectacular experience there. I've actually been back to Iceland five years in the last, five times in the last uh, ten years. Now 17 years, isn't it? It's, this is 17 years ago. Jesus, I've been telling this story a long time. <laughs> um, but that's not the point of the story. Uh, <laughs> South of France is where the story happened. So one of the nights we're there, my brother says, Carl, you're driving. We're all going out for a 13-course French meal. And we're going to this uh, castle that's been turned into a restaurant in the hotel. So sure enough, I do that. And we drive there, and uh, uh, they had the nannies watch the kids. And we go, and we sit in this amazing courtyard right at, right at sundown. And I mean, it's a spectacular place. And if you've never had a 13-course French meal, what they do is they bring... A tiny little bit of food, 13 times. That's what they do, 13 times. <laughs> kind of like what you did last night, Ariana, or Adriana, right? You kind of, teasing. So, uh, and with each one of these little bits of food, the waiter or the maitre d' will bring this tiny little glass of wine. And they will tell you why that wine was paired with that food and the vineyard that that glass of wine came from and the family who owned that vineyard and the history behind that family. All very interesting. So my brother and his wife, they recognize a good drinking opportunity and they're ha, 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 having a good time and asking more questions and hey, we like that one, right? Me, I'm already 13 years sober, so I'm trying all the Diet Cokes of the region, 
uh, kept asking, him, kept on asking him to tell a story about that. You know, he was a little bit like offended or something, right? So, but my brother and his wife, they're having a good time. And my mother, though, after two tiny little rats, my mother, I, I've always known this about my mother. She, due to her professional life, she's been put put in many situations where alcohol is put in front of her. But she's a master at having a couple of sips and just pushes away. She probably. Alcohol is put in front of her at least 25 to 30 times a year, and probably when you add it all up, she has half a drink. I'm not kidding. She's a master at it. I've watched her do it. But this time, after two little sips of this, she says to the waiter, no more for me, she says. And I go, Mom, come on. I'm driving. Have a little more, for God's sake. And she goes, no, no, Carl. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Now, I should have left well enough alone, but I followed it up with the million-dollar question. I go, "Uh, Mom... I've been curious. How does it make you feel? And she said, well, Carl, I'm having a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience here. I'm sitting here in this courtyard looking at the brilliant colors of the French countryside at sunset. The colors are just so vibrant and alive. And I'm listening to that string quartet, Carl, and the music is rattling my bones. And I'm here talking to three of the people I love the most in the world. And Carl, if I were to drink too much alcohol, the colors would start to get blurry and sloppy. The music would start to sound shallow and off in the distance. And I would have a hard time keeping a conversation going with you. I know. Do you get that? That's fundamentally the opposite relationship to alcohol that I have. Because what she's saying is of and by herself, she sees the colors of life. She hears the music. And she can connect with God's other kids. She adds a little alcohol, and it all gets dull, blurry, and sloppy. You see, me, of and by myself, I cannot see the colors. I cannot hear the music. And you're goddamn boring. (laughs) You really are. You give me four drinks, and I'm like... Oh, look at those colors. Have you seen such colors? Do you hear that cello? I'll tell you where it was made. Whether I know or not, I can make up the name of a German village on the spot. And you, you become very interesting, but not as interesting as me. And I had one of these experiences that if you stay here long enough, you will have. I I had this profound moment of, that's why she will not go to the gates of insanity or death or even think about it and be astonished that I will. And then I looked over at my brother and his wife. (laughs) And I go... Do you feel that same way? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we like, we like that sloppy, blurry feeling. We like to escape. So that separates the hard drinker from the alcoholic. Right? They're, they're trying. And I, first, I got to tell you, escape from what? Your life is perfect. Right? But it's not. But I'm just teasing. Right? But they're trying to escape. I'm trying to join. That's, what, that's why they won't go to the gates in Sanadir. That's why if the writing is on the wall for them, they will stop or moderate also. It's not their connection to life. But to me, this is the only way I, I feel connected to life. And I'm convinced that that's the point of taking the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That sooner or later, if I do not have an experience here where without a drink I see the colors of life, I hear the music, and I connect with God's other kids, I'm not staying. And I did not know, sitting in the back of that meeting, fresh out of that treatment center with 45 days, that if I were to stay, Alcoholics Anonymous was going to trick me into having that experience. And the very first thing that happened that night is one guy that night operating his primary purpose found me sitting in the back of the room. And he came up and he said, hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? Kind of surprised me, right? And and I didn't think quick enough to lie to him because I swear to you, my natural response would have been to lie. But he caught me off guard and I accidentally told him the truth. I said, I don't know. I just got out of a Navy treatment center. I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went, bing, big smile went across his face. At the break of the meeting, he was fighting his friends. He's mine, he's mine, mine, leave him alone, mine, mine. 
I didn't know you marked your newcomers around here, for God's sake. But there was something else going on in this guy's life that particular night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. Exactly. So he was wondering what he was going to do with his weekend. Homicide. Suicide. Get loaded to grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this guy was insane over this woman. Flat out insane. In between this barrage of meetings he would drag me to. In between each meeting he'd throw me in the passenger side of his car. He'd start driving and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cards that just made it to the next meeting I guess. And he'd be yelling at me. You gotta go to me. You gotta read the book. You gotta sponsor. God damn her. Gotta go to me. Gotta go to me. And he's spitting on me. I'm like, oh, man. Now, I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. But I'm so very glad that that guy, that night in his pain, was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and therefore he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I am so glad that that guy that night was not at home underneath his covers, whining into his sponsor's answer machine. If you're 25 years old or younger, an answering machine is this box that used to sit, used to sit on the kitchen counter. So glad he was not whining into his sponsor's answer machine. Sponsor, where are you? Fix me. I'm dying here. Give me the golden answer. I'm so glad that his sponsor had obviously sponsored him in this way. Yes, I will absolutely try to be there and give you some answers whenever times get tough and when not so tough. I'll do my best to give you answers. But son, if you learn to work with others, you will have a lifetime of solutions at your fingertips. And he understood that. And he was dragging me around, not because he was dragging me around, not because he thought I might stay sober. I'm sure that probably crossed his mind, but he was so self-obsessed that weekend. He was just dragging me around as a prop not to do something really stupid that weekend. I'm glad I could be of service to the guy. <laughs> so after that weekend, I get back to my ship, and the one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous on my ship is waiting for me. His name was Bob W. I told you about him. He was 23 years old, but he had 14 more months than me. He became my first sponsor. Could not have been a better sponsor at the time. He had never worked with anybody, but, man, he was living a really valuable way of life because he had a home group. He had a sponsor. He had commitments. He was working steps, he was reading the book, and now he was going to work with somebody, right? He was living a really valuable way of life. So valuable a way of life that all he had to do to effectively help save my life was stick his hand out and say, come do what I'm doing. That's a really valuable way of life. We forget that sometimes, don't we? We get, stay here three years, ten years, twenty years. Some nights, really? Another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is that all there is? There's got to be more to life. And we forget it's the most beautiful gift ever given to our kind. It's an incredibly valuable, valuable gift. Two years sober, I got an honorable discharge out of the Navy. That is a uh, result of the, uh, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and apparently Merciful God and a personnel that lost half my file. Uh, that's how that happened. One of the main things that I learned, though, in that first two years, i got to tell you, this is the highlight of what I learned in, in my first two years of sobriety. I was a nomad in Alcoholics Anonymous. Our ship would pull in, Bob and I would would uh, find meetings in whatever town or city we're in and we'd back on the ship and we would meet every night at uh, 6 p.m. and we'd read the book back and forth. And i got to tell you, it's, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form, the blind leading the blind. Neither one of us knew what we were doing, but we're on that ship reading that book. But I learned at a fundamental level that only we can help us. There is a magic that happens between one alcoholic sharing with another that happens nowhere else in the world. And that is the foundation of what Alcoholics Anonymous is. It's what separates us from every other organization or spiritual movement to ever hit the planet. One alcoholic sharing with another. That one alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like no one else can. And how I learned that, I'll never forget. Like I said, we would often pull into uh, various ports. This particular time, we are in Victoria, British Columbia. 
And uh, we got a hotel room to split, and we went into the local AA uh, clubhouse, and we went to the meeting. After the, after the meeting, my first sponsor, Bob, uh, said, you know, I'm not really feeling too well. I'm going to head back to the... Uh, I'm going to head back to the hotel room. I stayed out with the AAers for another couple hours. I don't know, went to coffee, another meeting, I don't remember. But a couple hours later, I come back to the hotel room, and Bob, my first sponsor, had found this other guy from our ship, Blair, in the gutter. I mean, literally. Blair is hammered. Blair doesn't even know where he's at. And Bob has him on my bed, propped up against the headboard with with an end table and a chair and a couple of pillows. And Blair's like... He's got vomit down him and on his pants. And I'm going, that's my bed. Right? But Bob is sitting there at the end of the bed reading the big book. We are more than 100 men or women. Who are... And I'm looking at this scene going, Blair doesn't even know where he's at. You know, Blair. I think Bob is wasting his time. This is ridiculous. But Bob's doing it. So I throw my 10 cents in, right? And then we carry Blair back on, you know, back to the ship to make sure he's safe, get him into his rack. That's the last we hear of Blair for weeks. We're now back in Port in San Diego, weeks later, and it's 3 a.m., and I'm asleep on, on, uh, in my rack on the ship, and it's like 3 a.m., and wake up, wake up, and pulls, Bob pulls my curtain back, and Blair's on the Coronado Bridge, we gotta go get him! I'm like, oh, all right. Apparently, over the last few weeks, Blair has tried to drink, he's tried not to drink, he's tried to drink, he's tried not to drink, he's at the jumping off place, apparently, he's on the Coronado Bridge. If you're not familiar with the Coronado Bridge, it's an extremely popular suicide spot. And so popular that back in the 80s, before cell phones, they would have a suicide hotline phone about every 100 yards. And Blair was up there, and he'd gotten onto the suicide hotline phone. And this is what he was saying to the very highly qualified, well-meaning suicide hotline counselor. Blair was telling her, well, before we got there, before we got there, uh, uh, Bob grabs me, and we hop into his car, and we drive down to the base of the, North, base of the Coronado Bridge, and Bob says, Bone up on working with others. Grab the big book out of the glove box. And I'm like, all right. <clears throat> uh, I said, see your man alone if possible, Bob. He goes, uh, forget it. Wait, we're going to wing it tonight. <laughs> so what had been happening over the last few hours, what had been happening over the last few hours is Blair had been talking to this very well-known suicide, uh, very well-meaning suicide hotline counselor. And Blair had been saying, I will only talk to Bob W. <laughs> They're going, who's Bob W.? And Blair was saying, it's anonymous. (laughs) So she went and got her boss, another well-meaning, highly educated suicide hotline counselor, and they both got on the phone and they did the good cop, bad cop, confuse them with rifling questions back and forth, find out he's from the Navy and what ship he's from. So they just take a a wild shot at at calling the quarterdeck of our ship, and they go, is there a... Bob W. there? Now, my first sponsor would guard your anonymity at the level of that ship, but he never guarded his own so he could be of service at any time. So the guy who answered the phone said, yeah, 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 Mr. 12 Steps, we know all about him. <laughs> so they go and get Bob, Bob gets me, we're heading down to the base of the Coronado Bridge. We get down to the base of the Coronado Bridge, and everything that San Diego County has available for a situation like this is there. The fire department is there, the police department is there, the paramedics are there, the on-duty psychologist is there. And they have the speakerphone thing, contraption wired up to that phone up there. And we walk up on that scene and a fireman who seems to be in charge says, is one of you Bob W? And Bob goes, yeah, yeah, that's me. He goes, I don't know what you're going to do. We've been talking to him for an hour and a half and he's not budging. And they hand him this little speakerphone and go ahead, give it a shot. And Bob says, Blair? And you can hear on the other end. Bob, is that you? He goes, yes, Blair, it's me. And I get the hell down from that bridge. Okay. (laughs) One alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like no one else can. Don't forget that. Nobody can help us but us. Therefore, we got to show up at our home group. We got to show up when asked. If you're newer, maybe even when you're not so new, if Alcoholics Anonymous is not inconvenient, you're not doing it right. If people in your life that are not alcoholic are not questioning how much you're doing in AA, you're not doing enough. Do not worry if people think AA is a cult. We are not. In fact, I will. Disp- here's how to disprove. That AA is a cult. When, you know, people that love us, they go, we love that you're not drinking, but look out. I read there's an article about AA is a cult. This is how we disprove that Alcoholics Anonymous is a cult. A cult says to the potential person, give up all your worldly possessions, quit talking to your family, and come in here with us. Right? That's what a cult says. 
Give up all your worldly possessions. Quit talking to your family and come in here with us. That's what a cult says. Alcoholics Anonymous says, we know you don't have a damn thing left. (laughs) And your family won't talk to you. Come in here with us. We'll teach you how to talk to your family. And in between meetings, you might get a couple of things back. We're not sure. Depends on on how alert you are sober. We're not sure yet. Right? (laughs) It's completely the opposite. So two years sober, got an honorable discharge out of the Navy, and I moved up to uh, Covina to go, go back to school. And the only reason I went back to school was as an amend. Right? I told you that my parents had paid for that bachelor's degree. I didn't have one. So I was told I had two choices. One was to pay them back every single nickel that they had wasted or go get what they had paid for in the first place. And I pulled into Covina, California. That's where I still live now, 28 years later. And I have found a life there that I did not even know existed for a guy like me. And I'm going to sum it up because I think I've already gone in a good hour. I'm going to sum it up with this. <sighs> Amongst all the other things that have happened in my life in between meetings, the main thing that I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous that it held me really, really solid is that my job is to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world. Instead of trying to hash it out there in the world, and trying to find time for Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're a real alcoholic of the type described in the book, trying to live out there and visiting us when convenient is, a, is, is literally, it's the, it's the good way to die. But if I really want to live my life to the fullest, I live here and I, could, I can visit the world in abundance out there. When I was 17 years sober, I got married. Uh, the marriage did not work out. I know you've never heard of that in AA. But we had two beautiful kids. Their names are Madison and Ryan. They are 10 years old and 12 years old now. If you're a Facebook friend of mine, I'm sorry. I know I put up a lot of pictures, but I I love those kids so much. It's like I met who I would die for. I'd never felt that before. I know when I joined the Navy, they made me raise my hand and say I would die for you. I was really hoping it was not going to come to that. But it's like with my kids, I'd never felt that level of love for another human being like that. I love other people. I do. Right? Peter and Robert, love you guys. Really do. But if we're out at Starbucks later and some guy comes in wielding a gun saying, when are you got to go? I would say, have you met Robert? (laughs) And Peter's next in line. But if it's my kids, I I wouldn't, wouldn't even think twice. If it meant they could live. I've never felt that way. And I would never trade my kids for the first drink. But I'm alcoholic. And I know what it means to be alcoholic. Although I would never trade them for the first drink, I would trade them for the second drink like that. So therefore, there is nothing more important than me staying in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's my only chance to be a good dad. And that's really, every day, that's the forefront of my mind. Be a good dad, as best as you can be. But i got to be with you or I don't even get a chance. Thank you very much for having me.